Coming up on today's show, Calgary City Council decides to remove the voluntary component of the restriction exemption program. It's now mandatory in that city. We'll chat with Jeff Davison and Ernie Sue. We'll speak with one of the winners and one of the losers from Monday night, Blake Desjardins, the winner in Edmonton Griesbach, James Cumming unseated in Edmonton Centre. And what about our national security set up in this country? There's a group of experts saying, we need to do some work. We'll have that chat. Ah, the division in Alberta. I say it's better to stick with Jason Kenney rather than try and change the Premier in the middle of a, a pandemic. And the text line, giving it to me. Give your head a shake. This lame horse is killing people. Kelly, though, says, I agree with you, Shay, regarding Mr. Kenny. Now is not the time to change leadership. That's the world we're living in right now. Um, it's pretty tough to find consensus on a lot of issues. Although, City Council came close in Calgary yesterday, very close, just one vote against uh, coming from mayoral candidate Jeremy Farkas, who did not support the move to make the new bylaw mandatory in Calgary. Basically what it is, is businesses and facilities that were previously weighing whether or not they wanted to opt in, remember the choice was theirs under the province's plan, um, they don't have that decision in front of them anymore. The new COVID-19 vaccine passport bylaw passed by City Council yesterday, uh, 13 to 1 in favour, removes the option. Under the new bylaw, city peace officers also now have enforcement authority that previously they did not have Um, under the public health order that was issued by the province. So now, bylaw enforcement can actually make sure that these rules are being followed. Uh, City officials and councillors said they made the decision because they heard from a lot of businesses that felt they were put in a spot. And they were facing a lot of the outrage and a lot of the anger from people who were opposed to any sort of vaccine certification. And ultimately, it was their choice. Was it really their choice? I mean, if you're a restaurant and you want to have customers in your restaurant, you need to have the vaccine certification program in place. If you don't, you're limited to outdoor dining in late September in Alberta or takeout only. So if you want to operate your business, you pretty much have to go along. But It was done under the guise of giving business owners a choice. You can argue about how much choice they really had, and ultimately the people who were angry were angry at their staff and the business owners, and they didn't feel that was fair. So apparently they had been in touch with Calgary City Council asking them to do this, and Mayor Nahed Nenshi said that we had to move on this. This means that for certain categories of business in the city, most notably restaurants, bars, pubs and nightclubs, as well as recreation facilities and a list of others, but those are the two that probably will impact most people's lives, proof of vaccine will be mandatory for everyone over 12. So the decision has been removed. It is now mandatory in the city of uh, Calgary. If you break this new bylaw, here's how the fines break down. Uh, It's similar to the mask bylaw. $500 if you fail to provide proof of vaccination, a negative COVID-19 test, or a medical exception letter. Um, Businesses that don't check for any of those can also see a $500 fine, and businesses have to put up the city's prescribed signage. And if they don't, that can also result in a $200 fine. So the enforcement is now being brought along with uh, the discussion that was had in terms of bringing these in, and the decision has been removed from the business owners. It's no longer their choice. Calgary City Councillor Jeff Davidson joins us now to talk about the decision made yesterday afternoon in Calgary Council Chambers. Um, Councillor Davidson, you were in support of this motion. Just tell us why. You know, I think it's really about simplifying the rules. I think, you know, we heard from so many businesses that, uh, 
they're having a tough time, right? They're having a tough time putting these restrictions and rules on their shoulders. We've seen staff get spit at. We've seen staff punched. We've seen threats be made. Um, and, you know, when it all comes down to it, we set ourselves up in a situation where if you take a mall, for instance, you go into the mall, you go into a retailer shop, uh, the rules would be different at the retail shop than it would be over at the food court. And so we're really just trying to set some consistency and some standard messaging. And businesses were really asking you to do this. They wanted you to step up. Yeah, well, like I say, businesses are just, they don't know how to do this on their own. And, you know, in particular, when you have a small shop, you know, somebody's being threatened because somebody won't wear a mask. It's It's been a challenge for them. And I think... Yeah, this is a tough decision for a city to have to make, but I think it's it's incumbent on us to put the burden on our shoulders, not on the shoulders of each and every small business owner who's just struggling right now to survive. And I think one of the big distinctions in doing what you did yesterday is the fact that it opens it up to enforcement by Calgary bylaw officers. Was that a big consideration? You know, I think, like everything through this, it, it's been a challenge enforcing everything, but I do think for extreme cases, we want to make sure that enforcement is possible. You know, we can't be enforcing our way out of this situation. We're asking people to, you know, follow the rules and, and try and do, you know, what, what's been outlined. Um, but this does give us that uh, that bylaw potential, that enforcement potential, uh, if need be, on those cases where where enforcement is, is required. And I know you were on social media talking about the fact that this affects you personally. You have, you have a child who's seen what these delays in the healthcare system mean, right? Well, and, you know, I try to separate a little bit of it, but it's like everybody, it's hard to separate the emotion of your own life and, and what's before us. And so the bylaw really has, you know, nothing to do with what's going on other than provide some consistent messaging and some enforcement. But I'll tell you, it's, it, it's been a personal struggle for me uh, going through a lot of this, knowing that, you know, I've got a child myself who requires significant health care, um, you know, when and where it's needed. Uh, I know there's a lot of parents out there. There's a lot of individuals out there. Uh, it, it's tough, right? It's tough when we see our health care system overwhelmed. It's tough when we see our nurses and doctors uh, be villainized and, and treated uh, with such disrespect, it's, you know, it boils down to everybody has rights, but we're trying to do the responsible thing here. Councillor Davidson, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Calgary City Councillor uh, Jeff Davidson joining us to talk about the decision that was made in council chambers yesterday. And uh, as I said, 13 to 1 in favour. All right, circling back to where we started. We started this morning talking about Jason Kenney's political future and how he seems to have secured that for at least a few more months. Uh, And then we started talking about the Calgary bylaw situation, which um, is a step that no other council has taken at this point yet. Um, You know how it worked with the province when they came in with the REP, the Restriction Exemption Program, right? Basically saying businesses are going to have to screen people for vaccinations or negative test results if they want to operate in certain ways, basically the certain way being at capacity. For example, if you're a restaurant and you don't bring in the program, uh, you're close to indoor dining, right? So if you want customers in your restaurant, you have to have the vaccine passport system in place. Um, And then we heard all kinds of reports from different restaurant owners saying, now I am the brunt 
of the abuse from people angry about this policy who think I made the choice when really I don't think I had a choice. So uh, let's get some reaction into where we stand in terms of the REP program across the province and reaction to what Calgary Council decided to do yesterday. We're going to chat with Ernie Sue, who is the owner of Trolley 5 Community Brew Pub and president of the Alberta Hospitality Association. Ernie, thanks for joining us again. Always nice chat. Yeah, it's great to chat with you again, Shay. First of all, let's just start with the... Uh, the decision that was made by Calgary City Council yesterday, overwhelmingly, 13 to 1 in favor of this, saying that, you know what, we're going to take the burden off business and we're going to put it on us and say that it's now mandatory in Calgary. Do you support what they did? You know, I, I, I do at this time, yes, because there's just been too much blowback on restaurants that are, yeah, and restaurant owners that are just trying to do what they can uh, to stay open and, and pay their mortgage. And we, we have to remember that it's the restaurants that that are always there for, for the community, It's it, it, you know, donate to charities, donate to your local young youth sporting associations. And I think that's a huge reason why the city council did what it, what it did in, in, you know, in Calgary. Um, just the situation around the province, when, when you're speaking to association members and restaurant owners and other hospitality uh, businesses and things like that, just how bad has it gotten? And, you know, what, what, what are they seeing when they open the door? Well, we're, we're seeing some, some pretty bad hostility in certain areas where, you know, as it's gotten out that certain restaurants have had to close to indoor dining this time and go back to takeout, which is 5% of their revenue. And and in those areas, I'd say, please take a deep breath and remember that, again, these are restaurant owners that still have families that they have to feed. They have mortgages they have to pay. But more importantly, in those areas, those restaurants have always been there for the community. You know, not just serving and feeding them, but, you know, again, being involved in local charities or being involved in the local sporting associations. Um, you know, in terms of what the restaurants can do, like you say, some of them have just decided it's not worth it's not worth the hassle and, and the blowback and the abuse that we're taking, and they've closed down. I mean, is there any backing from the province in terms of we'll help you? None. No? None. There's no backing from the province financially, and I think um, I'm hoping that every Albertan out there understands that there are no there is no financial aid right now from the government uh, for hospitality. Um, you know, we still have to remember. The restaurants that, that have to stay open with the REP program, uh, many of them have hired to hire extra staff to, you know, to help at the front door to expedite the um, proof of vaccination or a negative test. Um, you know, Calgary councillors and the mayor yesterday standing up and saying they've heard from all kinds of small business owners and restaurateurs and things like that saying that they need some help here. So uh, what changes now with this new bylaw? What are you hoping to see at least happening in the city of Calgary? Well, we're going to try to make sure that we have all the details at 100% from, from you know, the city councillors as well as um, city council itself. It's just, just to ensure that all the details are out to not just hospitality, but all small businesses and, and more importantly, to the public. In terms of enforcement, now that bylaw officers have the ability to enforce the new rules, does that change things? I mean, in, basically it was left up to staff in the restaurant to try and make this work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, you know, we can't have staff try to police this. It's just, yeah. it's just far, far too hard. I mean, we're still waiting on examples from the government of exactly what a proof of vaccination should look like or look like or uh, proof of a negative test. So um, it's just far too hard to try to create a hostile situation at the front door between, you know, uh, restaurant and guests. Have you heard from any other jurisdictions that they're taking similar consideration uh, to do what Calgary did? 
Uh, we haven't heard any as of yet. Um, you know, I, the, the Calgary, uh, you know, Ward Sutherland, who's head of the business advisory committee here at Calgary, I know he did a great job of, of contacting all small businesses before the motion went through. So, um, you know, we're hoping that uh, other jurisdictions can see what, you know, after it's been a week now, what small businesses had to go through um, at the door. Ernie, uh, we'll follow up and we'll see if more jurisdictions do take this step, but I appreciate your time this morning. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. That's Ernie Sue, who is owner of Trolley 5 Community Brew Pub and the president of the Alberta Hospitality Association. And um, yeah, uh, there's all kinds of testimonials from different businesses and a number of them said, we're just closing. We don't need this. You know, we don't need our staff being yelled and screamed at and being challenged and confronted by people trying to get themselves Facebook famous by coming in and making a scene. There is nothing more unfair than that. So it looks like now that the dust has settled and the mail-in ballots have been counted, we are seeing four seats that are not conservative in the province of Alberta. In the last election, it was just one. Um, But now we've got two liberal seats. We've got two NDP seats. One of those NDP seats is Edmonton Griesbaugh. It was held by Kerry Diot for the Conservatives after the last election. Now that all the recounts, or not recounts, but mail-in ballots, all the ballots have been counted, Blake Desjardins, the NDP candidate, has been proclaimed the winner, and he joins us now to talk about it. Blake, thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Of course. Good to be on the show. First of all, congratulations. Uh, You know, you're a young fella. It must be a very exciting day for you. Well, I think it's not only just exciting, but it's also exhausting, but I'm <laughs> so ready to get to work. You know, that's the big part of what today's about for me, and I think I'm uh, excited to getting used to this. Yeah, um, just tell us about the campaign. What did you hear as you were out knocking on doors that you think led to this change? Well, I think there was a multitude of things, but one largely was making sure people felt heard. You know, I think people in Edmonton Griesbaugh, they felt as though federal federalism or even federal politics was something that was very distant, inactive, not present. And I think the representation that we offered and the option for better was obvious to them. We showed up at their door, we listened to their concerns, and they ranged from things like violence uh, against uh, people who, you know, maybe new Canadians, especially black women wearing hijab, to things like defending our public health care system. These are the issues I think people in Edmonton Greece are concerned about, and they want to make sure that we heard from them. And I think that's what made the difference in our election, is making sure that we're present in the community, we're active in the community, and we're there for people, because we're going to be. Um, what, what, what's your focus uh, as you head to Ottawa now, um, representing Edmonton Greensboro? I know, uh, you know, uh, Jagmeet Singh used the opposition to his advantage. What are you hoping to see the NDP advance uh, in their position, sort of as kingmaker in a sense? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great question, and I think as many folks have seen over the last 18 mo- or 20 months with the pandemic, we're in our fourth wave today. During the first, second, and especially, or sorry, during the first, second, and third, and especially the second, we've seen healthcare in Alberta, for example, uh, take huge and massive hits. The Democrats, we brought in universal healthcare, we fought for it, and now we have to defend it. And that's my big concern right now, especially in Alberta, as we face potential. Uh, uh, cuts and back uh, and cutbacks on public health spending, and we are experiencing right now what it, the cost of that looks like. We're seeing people who have lost loved ones here in Edmonton, Greensboro. We've seen big corporations like Revira, for example, at uh, long-term care homes. They have no quality or or basic standard of care for our seniors, 
And I think these are the issues that are important to me is making sure that we have a better outcome uh, to serious situations like we've experienced the last 20 months and to prevent some of the worst cases from ever happening again. You're a ground... Yes, that 53 deaths at one of the reviewer sites in our district. Yeah, long-term care is definitely uh, something that we need to do a, a complete overhaul in this country. I think most people would agree with you. Blake, you're a groundbreaker. Um, let's talk a bit about that. Um, Two-Spirit, I believe the yeah. only one in the House of Commons, uh, the only Indigenous MP from Alberta. You're, uh, you're a bit of a trailblazer on a couple of fronts here. Oh, well, thanks, Shay. I think that it's, no, it's not a direct... Uh, uh, congratulations to me, but to our team and to the remarkable people of Edmonton Greaves. But they've elected better, they've elected change, and I hope to present as much of that as I can. Many people in our constituency want to see better representation, but also more diverse representation. You know, I'd also stand to be not only the, you know, one of uh, the only Indigenous member of Parliament, in addition to being the only two-spirit in Canada, the first of that, which I'm tremendously honoured and grateful for, but I'm also one of the youngest members of Parliament. And these are some of the issues and some of the demographics that are currently missing from the House of Commons and have historically missed uh, these perspectives from the House of Commons, which largely, I believe, contribute to the disenfranchisement of so many people in our community. Um, you know, there was some criticism that the NDP was just seen as being in bed and in cahoots with the Liberals, and the Liberals wouldn't have been able to do some of the things that they'd done. Um, how vigilant will you be and how willing will you be to challenge the Liberal government from your position, albeit you're just one, but you're part of that party? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what's your stand on that? Well, I think the Liberals, as everyone knows, uh, especially now that we're done this election, called this election during a time where no one wanted it. You know, yeah. as much as I'm grateful for being elected as a member of Parliament here in Edmonton Greaves, but I never expected to be this soon or this fast. I thought pragmatism and better val- or better knowledge would have prevailed and that the government would have continued to work with all members of uh, of the House of Commons to make sure solutions were available for everyone. But that didn't happen. And so I intend to hold the government accountable for these decisions and putting the lives of many of Albertans on the line while we go through this public health care crisis, while we go through an employment crisis, while we go through so much change, then an election was a bad call. And, you know, I'm an Indigenous person, so you don't have to tell me twice to hold the government to account on their promises when they fail to deliver things like clean water. You know, that's, it's such an abomination to me that a country like yeah. Canada, G7 member, one of the wealthiest countries in the entire globe, can't provide clean water. We can send people to space, we can build massive spaceships, we can solve an international disease, but we can't get kids clean water. That rests solely at the feet of Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, who failed on that commitment, and they should be held accountable for it. Blake, congratulations again, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Right on. Thanks so much, Shay, and looking forward to speaking with you again soon. Yeah, we'll do it soon. Thanks very much. That Thank is you. Blake Desjardins, who is the new MP for Edmonton Greasebaugh, defeating the Conservative candidate in the election. It took a while. It was a close, close race before they declared this one. Uh, the final count, 40.5% to the NDP, 37.1% to the Conservatives. So it came right down to those um, mail-in ballots. Uh, Desjardins was leading on election night, but it was close enough that he didn't want to make any speeches, and neither did Kerry Diot. The Conservatives, they decided to wait it out and see how things broke down when they got to the uh, mail-in ballots and uh, the lead hold. All right, let's uh, continue our discussion on uh, Monday night's federal election. Uh, as we know, the Conservatives uh, saw some seats disappear for them in the province of Alberta. One of those seats was Edmonton Centre. The incumbent, James Cumming, representing the Conservatives, was defeated. Uh, it came right down to the wire, though. Randy Boissonneau, the winner, with 33.7% of the vote, 
James coming 32.5%, 577 votes separating the two. Uh, James coming joining us now. Uh, James, thanks for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Hey, well, uh, thank you for having me, Shay. It's always a pleasure to uh, chat with you. Yeah, I always look forward to it. Obviously, um, not the outcome you were looking for, extremely close, but uh, in the end, um, uh, we've got Randy Boissonneau headed back to Ottawa. Yeah, of course it's not. Uh, you know, my time in Parliament was relatively short because of, we called this snap election. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you know, from my perspective and that of uh, the people that support me and the volunteers, I wish I could have been there longer to try and implement some of the things that really drove me into politics, which was, you know, economic recovery, improving the walk of life for a lot of people. But the electorate has spoken and you have to accept that. That's how this, that's just how it works. And that's what democracies are about. How did uh, the campaign go, do you think, when you were out knocking on doors, when you were meeting with people, when you were getting feedback? I mean, that writing is notoriously very, very close. Um, did, it, did it sort of play out as close as you expected? What were you hearing from people? Well, I think initially, uh, I think the campaign was going quite well. But I think a couple of things that I noted when... Um, you know, knocking on as many doors as we did. And, you know, I personally did over 5,000, so uh, the hips are a little sore these days. <laughs> but uh, um, so two things. One was uh, vaccines, vaccine mandates, and, of course, you saw uh, a rise in um, support for the PPC, which in our riding, you know, every vote you lose um, that may have been yours it hurts you. Um, and the second part was, you know, um, an angry electorate, and they're they're angry at a lot of things. But um, and I and I would tell you they're angry at the provincial government, uh, which, uh, although shouldn't affect a federal election, it does yeah. um, because some of that comes across. So, you know, I uh, I, I heard that, and people are frustrated, Shay, um, and I get it. Um, I'm frustrated too. Um, but I had hoped that, you know, let's focus on the things that bring us together rather than that, those that pull us apart. Um, and to me, those were economic issues and, you know, trying to get people back to work and get things going again. But, um, you know, an angry electorate will do what it does. And, uh, I respect their choice. Yeah, James, you mentioned a couple of things, and clearly we saw an erosion of conservative support in the province of Alberta to the tune of, I think, about 15% of the popular vote, which is sizable over just a couple of years. Um, was it all external factors? Was it more, you know, what was happening in the province of Alberta um, that affected that, do you think? Or was it uh, a pushback against uh, what the federal conservatives were doing or perhaps Aaron O'Toole? Have you had a chance to take a look and, you know, what were people telling you as they defected to the PPC or whatever they did? Um, what Was it primarily the provincial government that caused that? Well, I think it's a combination of both, Jay. Like people were, you know, anytime you look at what... Um, a difficult health crisis that yeah. we've got in this province and, and other places. People are looking for uh, somewhere to place their their displeasure and their and their anger at politicians. And so, I think it's a combination of both. I, I think it's a combination of there is a percentage of the population that are very upset about you know passports and uh, regulations related to vaccines. And then I also think there's a good chunk of the electorate that are you know upset at the provincial government and the current uh, crisis that we're in 
Um, if it was, you know, there was a point at six months ago where our numbers looked quite good, so things were, you know, moving yeah. along a little bit better. But the current state, you can't argue with the current state. It's it's tough in Alberta right now, and people are, um, you know, they're looking who who can I um, uh, force that anger onto? And and I think collectively, um, you know, we have a conservative provincial government here, and. There's some crossover to the federal government, not not just in Alberta, but I think that actually happened in other jurisdictions as well. I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, you uh, you ran Edmonton's Chamber of Commerce. You ran Edmonton's Grey Cup Committee. You're always busy doing uh, big things. Any idea what might come next? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what will come next. You know, I, it's been a privilege to serve uh, my community in, in a variety of different roles that I've had. And it's also been a privilege to be able to run and be part of uh, businesses that I've, I've been involved with. So I don't know. I, I think, uh, you know, for the next short period of time, I'll take some time with my family. Uh, and Debbie and I will try and you know, enjoy ourselves, maybe somehow get out of out of town for a while <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, reflect on what might be next. I, I know there's lots of work to be done in, in public life, uh, both here uh, provincially and and federally, um, but there's also important things to me, and and family has always been number one for me. So that's my top priority right now. I did know the answer to the question, but uh, it, it's a good answer, and I appreciate you taking time to share it with us this morning, James. All right, my pleasure. All the best to you and your viewers. Thank you. You too. That's James Cumming, uh, the outgoing MP from Edmonton Centre, and as I said, we'll wait and see what happens next with him. When we take a look at the federal election campaign, we talked a lot about fiscal policy, monetary policy, really didn't play a big role in the campaign. And and as the campaign went along, uh, we also talked about foreign policy. Again, largely missing from the campaign debates. Wasn't a big topic. We didn't hear a lot about it from the leaders. Um, perhaps, though, it's more pressing now than it has been in some time. And certainly it's a different landscape globally. Um, and the old or new Liberal government needs to navigate it starting today because things are moving fast. So let's get a discussion about where we are in terms of foreign policy in this country and what we need to be aware of. We're going to chat with Wesley Wark, who is a University of Ottawa historian and co-lead of a project that hopes to reimagine Canada's national security strategy. Wesley, thank you for your time today. appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Look forward to the conversation, Shay. Yeah, foreign policy, you know, I mean, even the fact that the geopolitical landscape is changing so rapidly right now really didn't get a lot of focus at all during this election campaign, next to none. But experts like yourself are starting to speak up a bit and say, hey, you know what, it really should have, because it's really important, especially right now. Yeah, Shay, I'm, I'm afraid that, that <laughs> experts like myself will, will always say that issues like foreign policy and national security and defense should turn up on the election campaign trail. and uh, But we say that, you know, uh, with a sinking feeling that it's unlikely that it will, um, you know, because particularly with a short election campaign, um, you know, the leaders of the parties have to stay ultra-focused, you know, try and advance their positions and avoid damage. And, and when you get into complex areas like you know, what, what's Canada's future position on foreign policy going to be? What are we going to really do about defense in the face of, you know, all kinds of budgetary pressures that now, you know, are impinging on government operations? How are we thinking about national security in the, in the face of a, you know, a very vastly changed national security landscape with lots of threats, 
coming at us, many of which, you know, really do impinge on ordinary Canadians' lives, whether it's kind of cybersecurity issues or, or the impacts of pandemic yeah. or climate change, whatever it is. None of that really showed up on, on the election campaign trail. Um, but all of the parties had, had their positions uh, kind of tucked away in their, in their back pockets. And, you know, if, if Canadians uh, looked at uh, the details of the election campaign platforms that were published along the way, uh, in fact, the NDP one, I think, was published before the election even began, you know, you, you, could, you could get a bit of a sense. But there was really no opportunity for Canadians to hear directly from the leaders about what, what their plat- platforms really, really meant. So, you know, now that a government is going to be formed, opposition parties are going to return to Parliament, new ministers are going to be appointed, ministerial mandate letters are going to be provided to them, which the public will now see, because that's the new new process. There is going to have to be a position, you know, the, the current government, the new old government is going to have to, <laughs> you know, stake out its position on this. But, you know, um, on things like foreign policy, particularly on, on, you know, how we're going to proceed with relations with China and our strategic approach to China, that's probably the number one issue yeah. alongside dealing with Russia and, frankly, alongside figuring out how to deal with the United States, which, which is still full of surprises for us as a, as a longtime ally. So there are lots of, uh, you know, lots of issues to grapple with. And the opposition parties will, will also be thinking you know, uh, how can I, as an opposition party, advance my interests? Where might I be able to find common ground with the government or push them towards common ground? So all of that is in play. It should have been in play in the election, but it will be in play, you know, once politicians really return and get back to work in Ottawa. It seems to me like national security, whenever you talk about U.S. politics, national security is right at the top of the list of the things that they're kicking around all the time. It's not in Canada. It seems like they have a much more proactive approach to foreign policy, and it seems like Canada is almost entirely reactionary. Yeah, it's, it's it's part of our kind of cultural baggage. What is the way I would put it, and and it's it's a, a reflection of the fact that I think for a very very long time Canadians, unlike their American counterparts, you know, were simply prepared to leave national security policy and worries about national security to you know Ottawa, whether Ottawa is close or distant, wherever you are geographically in the country. You know, that's just something the government would take care of as best they could, and it would be taken care of more or less in secret by you know, some, some cabal of officials serving politicians. You know, that, that's the, that was the old-fashioned view. That's why I call it cultural baggage. I, I think really in the years after 9-11, can, you know, Canadians woke up to the fact that national security matters to me. Uh, it changes the way my country works. It, it has impacts on politics and society. It, it changes our, our kind of role in the world. And, you know, I think there's a much higher appetite for information about national security and really for engagement uh, on, on national security issues, which the government is responding to by way of what they like to call transparency commitments, talking more and more about it. But I think we're in the early days of this. We're not anywhere close to the American situation. Um, but, I, you know, I think we're moving in that direction where Canadians will see that national security, that is how best do we protect Canada and, and Canadians and Canada's interests at home and abroad. This is a, this is a big topic. And, and, you know, it is, a, it is a, a thinly disguised secret on the part of political parties and leaders. They know, you know, once they get back to work uh, in a new parliament, uh, leading the government, that, you know, whether or not they talked about national security in the campaign trail, it is, uh, um, you know, high on the agenda of, of daily business. And, you know, what, what Canada is, is facing uh, at the moment is a, is a, you know, a real 
change in the national security landscape, where we have to think about things that we didn't really consider national security threats until recently. Pandemics, of course, number one, and how are we going to better prepare for them in the future? Climate change security impacts are galloping towards us in in ways that we're not really prepared for. Uh, You know, there are a whole world of cyber threats out there that, that we are trying to erect defenses for and better inform Canadians about, but we're not there yet. Countries are interfering in our democratic practices, and, and we'll see ultimately post-election whether there was much interference behind the scenes with the election itself. Perhaps not, but, but that's an ongoing threat. So there are all kinds of things out there that I, I think governments appreciate that they have to deal with, of course, because it's a number one responsibility. But we're coming around to the view that governments can't be left to do that on their own. They have to talk to Canadians about that, and they have to get buy-in from Canadians. You know, this is our this is our policy, whether in we're government or in opposition. This is the best way forward. Do you agree or not? And, and I think that's an important conversation that that we are uh, headed towards, and, and it's partly why we're we're running this project at the Center for International Governance Innovation. You co-author of a project. Um or co-lead on a project talking about reframing our national security framework in this country. And what That's what is idea. our national security framework? I mean, when you talk about our strategy and our framework, it, 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 what what is it? I mean, in terms of what we need to do, where we need to go from where we are, what are you talking about? So, so Shay, this is, this is part of, uh, frankly, the delight of this project and, <laughs> and, you know, its ambitious scope and its unprecedented nature. We do not have in Canada a national security strategy. I didn't think so. And that puts us, <laughs> we don't have one at all. That puts us offside with all our close allies. Britain has a published one. The United States has one that they're, they're constantly refreshing. Australia has one. New Zealand has one. We don't have one. The last one that we had dates back to 2004. And, and, you know, you have to be a brilliant researcher to find it in the archives of Library and Archives Canada. So it just sits on a, you know, metaphorical shelf. But, but I, you know, part of the argument here is, and we, we drew together about 250 experts across Canada and internationally to help us think through these issues. The argument is, you know, really threefold. First of all, the national security landscape has changed. The kinds of threats that Canada has to deal with is, has changed. Secondly, the world in which Canada is, is operating is, is very different from that which we're used to operating. You know, the, the old rules of international relations, the kind of comfort that there would be relative security and stability, that there would be strong American leadership, all kinds of, of, of issues, you know, have gone out the window. Yeah. And we're now facing a new geopolitical environment in which China has risen in particular as a you know, potential threatener as well as a country we have to figure out how to live with. So, so there is that. And, and then there's the, the whole question of, of how all of these things actually impinge on ordinary Canadians, you know, whether, whether they might find, you know, their you know, loss of personal identity through, through, you know, cyber attacks of some kind, whether they might find their business undermined uh, by, by ransomware attacks or intellectual property theft whether they might find, you know, a forest fire raging at their door or a flood coming into their basement. You know, it's, it's just something where we have to think as a, you know, as a, the government has to think about this. The government has to think about this in the context of its international relations. And the government has a, a new responsibility to explain to Canadians how they want to go ahead. And, and our hope with this project is that we'll, we'll, we'll feed some ideas into Ottawa and, you know, distribute them as widely, uh, you know, throughout the interested public in Canada as we can to, to get this debate going, really get some thinking going so that we can have a national security strategy going forward. 
you know, last one here, the geopolitical situation. It seems to me like making these kinds of changes and sort of revamping our national security framework, it, the time is of the essence. I mean, I don't know how much emphasis we need to put on the Australia-UK-United States mm. deal that happened last week, but it seems to me like things are happening um, and we're being left behind. Do I have it right or wrong? I think that's right. I mean, um, and to a certain extent, uh, I think it's fair to say that that, uh, the current Canadian government, uh, both the current one and, you know, previous ones, have been cautious in their approach to China, trying to figure their way. Um, And Canada's now, and it's partly, you know, your reference to this new pact with Australia and Britain uh, and the United States on, on, you know, nuclear submarines and so on. It's a real indicator. You know, Canada has kind of two choices. One is a confrontational policy towards China, which is is the sort of position that the United States is pursuing. Uh, The other is a European position, which is to say, well, China presents certain kinds of problems and challenges, but we want to work with China. And, And there's quite a stark difference between that American position, and we're a close ally of the United States, of course, and the European position where we might be inclined to gravitate towards. So we're kind of we're stuck in this uncomfortable position of not knowing quick which path we really want to pursue. But we have to make up our minds on that pretty quickly. And, and we have to indicate how we've made up our minds. I mean, I, I think that's just uh, essential. Absolutely. Interesting discussion. Uh, Wesley, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Great, great to chat. Thanks. Yeah. That is Wesley Wark, the University of Ottawa historian and co-lead on a project that he hopes will help governments reimagine Canada's national security strategy. And I know a lot of you have pointed it out on the text line as we've talked about this, that whole Australia-UK-US pact. um, Typically, Canada would have a seat at that table. Um, And Australia, you know, when you take a look at the way China has treated different people around the planet, right? And, you know, as I've characterized here on the show, they've just been punching Canada in in the nose repeatedly over and over and over, and we just seem to stand there and take the punches. Australia punches back you know, recognizing that they're probably going to lose the fight, but they're going to fight. And uh, they've paid a price economically for it, but they seem to at least be willing to push back a little bit, whereas uh, Canada hasn't done that. And uh, does that play into this new agreement? You know, um, Joe Biden at the uh, UN General Assembly this week was talking about China and how Western countries need to come together and sort of build some sort of firewall, some containment strategy, some understanding of what they're going to do with China as they continue to grow larger and larger and exert more and more influence globally. And uh, hopefully Canada's part of that, but it does require a change in our thinking, I think, because we sort of just, I think we've coasted on on the fact that we live next door to the b- biggest superpower on the planet. We've taken advantage of that and taken it for granted. And the United States has clearly indicated they're not interested in that role anymore. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.